You're listening to the Strong Towns Podcast. everybody. This is Chuck Marone. Welcome back to the Strong Towns podcast. This is a very special edition because I have two guests today. Representative Mike Gallagher represents Wisconsin's 8th district and Jake Achenkloss represents the 4th district of Massachusetts. Uh, they're both on the House Transportation and Infrastructure Committee and they have both uh, agreed to meet with me today. They both kind of like Strong Towns for some reason. So we're going to have a nice chat. Uh, Representative Achenklaas, welcome to the Strong Towns podcast. Thank you for having me on, Chuck. I've been a longtime reader and listener to Strong Towns. And as a city councilor in Newton, it was one of my go-to guides. So it's, it's a thrill to be here. Thank you. That, that means a lot to me. And Representative Gallagher, welcome. I've been in touch with your office for a long time and, and really appreciate sitting down with you. That's an honor. Likewise. You know, Jake, uh, I'm also excited to, to have this discussion. And we were joking before this started that uh, we have a lot of mutual friends and we've been meaning to get together in person. Now your audience is going to watch it happen on the fly here. Our best friendship emerging <laughs> on Strong Town. It's beautiful. I want to double down on that because I think one of the interesting things to me and I think will be interesting to our audience is that you two represent very different places, places that we're kind of told there's not a lot of commonality in today's America, but I sense that there is. And so I, I would like to start by having you kind of describe where you're from, the place you represent, and maybe some of the transportation infrastructure related issues that you bring to the table. And Representative Gallagher, can I start with you on this one? Sure. Uh, well, I represent Northeast Wisconsin in Congress. So think Green Bay Packers. I represent the Green Bay Packers I in won't, Congress. I won't hold that against you, friend. <laughs> well, I'm, I'm still recovering from yet another NFC Championship loss. So it's uh, dark days in Titletown, USA right now. Uh, I'd be interested in how Jake feels about Tom Brady, though. It's got to be a lot of mixed feelings for anyone from Massachusetts right now. Yes. Uh, it's, it's like going to your ex-girlfriend's wedding to watch Tom Brady uh, <laughs> <laughs> win in Tampa Bay, although I was rooting for him every step of the way. Sure. And I represent Gillette Stadium, so the New England Patriots have a special place in my heart. Oh, that's awesome. That's awesome. So, hey, look at that. that. There's a commonality. We both have NFL stadiums in our district. Um, I think for me, I mean, I, you know, we have a, a whole host of, of transportation and infrastructure needs in Northeast Wisconsin that stem kind of from our unique geography. We're, we're not only a rural district, but considering our proximity to the Great Lakes, we, you know, face some similar infrastructure issues to that of a coastal district as well. So, you know, for example, across my district, people suffer from severe flooding at times, which is something that we were able to address partially in Werda last year. We also have rivers that need to be dredged from the Harbor Maintenance Trust Fund and ports that become so frozen over in the winter that our cargo ships can't leave port for days during each winter season. And then, of course, we have kind of more you know, standard infrastructure concerns. Uh, you know, we have clogged highways that are in need of expansion, like I-41 between Appleton and Green Bay. Those are the two biggest cities in my district and, and regional airports that, um, you know, are struggling to cope with coronavirus and, and compete nationally right now. So, yeah, I think my district's the best in the country, but I think Jake might have a different view. Jake? I represent a region of Massachusetts right outside of Boston. It extends from the inner core suburbs of Boston through Southeastern Mass and the border of Rhode Island. And there are really two different dimensions to the district. In the Northern part, Newton, Brookline, Wellesley, Needham, these are suburbs that are within a 30 minute commuter shed of downtown Boston that have really participated in the Eds and Meds miracle of greater Boston in the last 40 years and have thrived along with the knowledge economy. And then in Southeastern Massachusetts, towns like Fall River, Taunton, Attleboro, were thriving in the 19th century and early 20th century, had strong traditions of manufacturing and textiles and jewelry, but have been really left behind since World War II and have struggled to reclaim a strong base uh, in manufacturing and in, in economic development. They are sort of torn between Providence and Boston as centers of gravity for economic development. One thing that is in common across the district, though, is water infrastructure. Our subsurface infrastructure in Massachusetts is going on 100 years old and some places even older. And Chuck, I know you talk a lot about this in Strong Towns, is an absolute ticking time bomb of a liability and, and needs to be a priority for clean water. Let me 
get into the the strong towns part of this. One of the things that we highlight the most is is that maintenance backlog. And part of our narrative really centers on the idea that we've overbuilt our infrastructure. We've actually built a lot of infrastructure. Infrastructure is one of these things where, you know, the economists will tell us, this is how we create jobs. This is how we create growth. And, and we become really good at this, going out and building stuff. We become less adept at maintaining it. And I would say less adept at making really good use of it. From where you're sitting right now, we're obviously in the middle of a pandemic. You guys have not really met in person because of the pandemic. There's a need to get the economy going and there's a, a big push. I'll start with you, Representative Achenklaas. What is the difference between or, or the, the sense in your mind of we need to do infrastructure for stimulus versus we need to do infrastructure as a smart long-term investment? Is there a difference to you? Is there a tension there? How do you approach thinking about this? Yeah, I don't think I see the tension there. What I see is a, an absolute need for us to be investing in maintenance right now. I had mentioned the water infrastructure, but we've also got significant backlogs of maintenance for surface infrastructure, roads, bridges, and for our light rail system as well. We need to be sure that we're fixing what we have. That does not preclude us from making further investments into connectivity. But what I hope that we do for an infrastructure bill this time around is that we start evaluating projects, not by what is shovel-ready, but by what is shovel-worthy. And we have the data and we have the sophistication in 2021 to do that. Between Bureau of Labor Statistics, between census data, between GPS data, you can look at a project, whether we're talking about a, a bike lane or a deep water port, and say, for this investment, how much thicker does the labor market get within a 30-minute commuter shed around this, this typical constituent? How much more are we connecting people to jobs and services? Is that going to be perfect? Of course, it's not going to be perfect, but there's a huge role for the federal government to play in making that data more transparent, more tractable, and then allowing states and cities to take the lead on how they want to make those investments now that they have clear access to that information. Too much, you get civil engineering reports that are 700 pages long, indecipherable to the constituent or to the city planner. And people are told, just trust us, this is the project to do. I want more robust debate that's informed by, well, actually, in this situation, you know, putting in a protected bike lane is actually the best thing we can do to thicken the labor market around somebody. Representative Gallagher, how do we look at stimulus versus making good long-term investments? Yeah, well, I'm somewhat skeptical that a shovel-ready project amounts to a significant form of, of stimulus. The timing you know, tends not to line up, particularly given that permitting alone takes years. You know, we put forward a plan, you know, in concert with the Trump administration on the TNI committee over the last few years that would reduce permitting to two years and, you know, reduce these you know, 100 page reports to something more manageable. The bill went nowhere. And so the idea that we're going to smash $2 trillion into a system that is already slow in order to get fast results, to me, doesn't hold water. I think Jake said something really important, though. And quite honestly, it's a debate that I don't think we've had in the committee that I hope we do. And particularly now that we have such talented new members like Jake on, on the committee, it's this idea that, you know, we start off with these very bold claims. You know, we have $3 trillion worth of infrastructure needs in America. We have $4 trillion, we have $2 trillion, And we never really dig in with full transparency into how these estimates are formulated, right? Let alone make the connection that Jake is talking about to local labor markets and, and the long-term economic impacts. So I think a useful starting point for this debate about stimulus or a, a, a bipartisan infrastructure bill is just sort of a an agreement on the data and how we are analyzing those data and a commitment to transparency when we throw around these massive numbers. And quite honestly, that's sort of a, a prior debate that we have yet to have on the committee that I hope we do, because it's important. And I'd be lying to you if I said I, I had a granular assessment uh, down to the dollar of, of our national infrastructure needs right now, because in many cases, we're relying on third-party analysis that is, not, that is not often dispassionate that has an interest in certain projects, if that nice. makes sense. That totally I, makes sense. Jake, please. I think we're seeing strides in the right direction here. I was speaking with Transportation for America about this, and there's a program in Virginia called Smart Scale that is, I think, very promising. And, and I, I believe, Mike, based on research coming out of University of Wisconsin, actually a partnership between uh, Wisconsin-Madison and, and Transportation for America to try to do a better job of measuring the ROI of transportation projects. 
And there's such an important role for the federal government to play as an honest arbiter of that kind of data. And then as much as possible, I mean, we used to say in the Marine Corps, sort of uh, centralized command, decentralized control, right? I think there's such a role to play in creating a common framework about how do you think about these projects and then letting mayors really take the lead on the investments. Uh, as a former city official myself, like I just know that state and local officials are so often best prepared to make the granular decisions about how to do projects. And Chuck, as you've pointed out so often in, in strong towns, a lot of times those projects are not very sexy. A lot of times they're like, you know, fixing a main street so that it's a more pleasant to walk on or planting trees or, you know, fixing the bus prioritization signaling. These are really important things that don't necessarily lend themselves to talking points, but really do lend themselves to better access to jobs and services. I agree with exactly what you just said. A lot of these projects are very small, even. They're fixing sidewalks. And, and as you say, like fixing the, uh, the, the bus signalization. What's the federal government's role in supporting that kind of investment? Because a lot of that investment is very granular, hyper-local. There's a tendency at times for city councils and, and, and Representative Ockenklaus, you, you, you are on one, to be tempted into chasing the, the shiny object, the big federal grant or the big federal project. How does the federal government support these smaller investments that are higher returning and, and really going to make better use of our existing infrastructure? Mike, go first. I've got thoughts, but I want to hear from you. <laughs> yeah. Since you opened the floodgates of, of Marine Corps-isms, I have this like fantasy that I'm going to be able to go around to every school in my district and and give a graduation speech that's like the opposite of every graduation speech everyone has ever given about like think big follow your dreams and have this whole this whole philosophy of life about thinking small and like this ties to a concept that we are brainwashed in the marine corps uh, surrounding brilliance in the basics you know they send jake and i to six months in quantico to the basic school it's not the sexy school it's not the high speed school it's just all about the basics of being a Marine Corps officer. And I bring that up only to suggest that too often we do not master the basics. And I think the federal role is one of perverting the incentives at the local level, right? I mean, we tried to get at this over the last four years with the whole infrastructure incentives initiative. This was part of Trump's whole, whole infrastructure plan where there was 200 billion that would go into this infrastructure incentives initiative. And what was unique about it is that grant awards couldn't exceed 20% of the total project costs. So consider that some projects right now, the federal government pays 95% of the cost. So this may be less stimulative to tie it to your earlier question, but in my opinion, it's more responsible. It's the federal government saying, okay, we wanna be a partner with the local government, but it's incumbent upon state and local governments to really do their homework, to understand the project and understand how much skin in the game they're gonna be responsible for over the entire lifetime of the project. So I sort of think about shifting or transforming the federal role in terms of the incentives and the signals it sends down to the local level, if that makes sense. It does. And just to build on that, we oftentimes think about the federal state local partnerships and transportation as they both kind of pitch in money and the federal government puts some money down and the state or city is required to put some money down. I think that's appropriate in some states to have to have that kind of skin in the game. What I'd like to see us pivot to, though, is a dollars for policy mindset, where mm -hmm. back to the idea of the federal government being an honest broker, there are some things that we have pretty strong conviction about our good land use or transportation policies across the board, uh, getting rid of parking minimums, uh, implementing congestion pricing in dense urban areas where they've got severe traffic, making it easier to build an extra increment of housing, as Strong Towns talks about, going from single family to two family, et cetera. I think adding some of those strings to federal dollars can be useful, not just for getting that policy to the front of the queue, but also, and I think this is sometimes overlooked, providing some political cover for state and local officials to do what they may want to do, but that's really difficult to do given a, a constituency. And I can tell you, as a city councilor on a land use and transportation committee, literally the least popular thing you can do is take away parking. I mean, it is <laughs> the, the most unifying issue in America is people's love of free on-street parking. And it's just super challenging sometimes to be a city councilor in a room with 150 of your constituents and be telling them like, yeah, we're going to take away all your parking to put in a bike lane. We're going to take away your parking to, to put in a bus lane or 
or we're going to charge for parking to reflect its true cost, right? Like these are, these are challenging things to do and having some, some federal strings come with money gives some of that cover that I think can be very useful. Only slightly less unifying Jake is America's hatred for Tom Brady. So it's parking <laughs> and Tom Brady in that, in that order, my friend. Wait until he's six years old and it's another three Super Bowl rings. I know. That's as scary as that might actually happen. Uh huh. I see kind of a consensus, not only I think with the two of you, but, but just generally, there's a broad support seemingly for fix it first kind of legislation. And if we're going to call it fix it first or call it something else, the idea that we would really focus on maintaining what we have before we make huge commitments to building new stuff maintenance backlog has to be addressed kind of guy. I, what I don't want to crowd out though, is the idea that we do need to have big ambitious investments ahead of us. You know, the Eisenhower interstate program, and we can debate whether in the long run highways have been good for us as a country, but was the kind of federal ambitious investment that I think did kickstart a huge amount of economic development. You look at port infrastructure in this country, for example, I don't know that that really lends itself to kind of an incremental mayor first approach. Like that's going to have to be done with some serious federal dollars. I think yeah. the same thing about airports, high speed rail that is regional in nature. Like we got some big, big projects to do that are, that I think do need national leadership, but I do think there's a lot of humility to come from us about one, how much fixing we have to do and two, how much deference we should be paying to state and local officials about what's best for their communities. I, I think there's a, a misconception sometimes that fix it first means no new construction. So if you're fix it first, you're anti-new road, you're anti-bridge. And, and of course, that's just not the case, right? The fact is, we do need both. But we often hear this argument that we need more spending because our infrastructure is crumbling. Well, if it's crumbling, let's fix it. And we can have that debate simultaneously about those big, ambitious projects Jake is talking about. So I don't think they're mutually exclusive. I do think, as your work has really convinced me, Chuck, that States and, and localities tend to underestimate the long-term costs of these, these shiny new projects, for which there's always a political incentive that may not be economically responsible over the long term. Right. Sort of a, a half-baked thought here, just because you mentioned Eisenhower and the Interstate Highway Project. I mean, that's that was part of the reason I, I worked so hard to get on the TNI committee. I, I wrote my, my graduate dissertation on the Eisenhower administration, and though it was about geopolitics and not about domestic policy, let alone infrastructure policy. I was always fascinated by the way in which Eisenhower couched arguments for the interstate highway system in terms of national security and quite adeptly connected mm -hmm. our infrastructure needs to the geopolitical environment. And I'm not sure we've quite done the same in the present day. I mean, certainly we've seen a big debate over China's massive investment in infrastructure, primarily in Indo-PACOM, and our need to counter their, you know, their Belt and Road Initiative but we haven't quite connected the intellectual dots between our own infrastructure needs domestically, some of those bigger national priorities Jake talked about, and the unique geopolitical environment we're in right now. I think the version of that for the 21st century is going to be less about connecting domestic transportation infrastructure to national security, although that may be an element, and more about connecting it with climate change and making a strong, visceral point to the American people who are, who are largely, I think, sold on the idea that climate change is real and that we need to take action on it. That, you know, in Massachusetts, transportation is 40% of our carbon footprint. If we are really serious about carbon neutrality by 2050, we'd better be rethinking how we get around and our reliance on single occupancy gas powered vehicles. What are the lessons from Eisenhower? And I'll start with you, Mike. When you look at the interstate highway system, I feel like there's a strong case that this was you know, economically transformative for America. I think there's also a strong case that when we got to the end of building what we said we would build, we had so much momentum, we just kept on going. There's also some micro lessons, I think, in there. As you're thinking about what the next generation of federal infrastructure investments would be, what are the lessons from Eisenhower? Well, the enduring lesson of Eisenhower, which transcends any issue area, infrastructure, domestic politics, foreign policy and your personal life is something that he often told his subordinates, which is 
Now, boys, let's not make our mistakes in a hurry. And that uh, phrase is constantly in my mind when I'm considering legislation and considering proposals. And I think that the history, though I'm not an expert on that particular part of the Eisenhower administration, I do think the history of the Internet State Highway Project is is a history of, of great success, but also some unintended consequences and negative externalities. Certainly, we've seen that in the Great Lakes system uh, with some of the promises of the St. Lawrence Seaway. And there's a phenomenal book by Dan Egan called The Death and Life of the Great Books, which is all about unintended consequences and the adverse impacts on the Great Lakes, a very ambitious, well-intentioned economic development and infrastructure project. So for me, it's both a uh, an inspiration that it is possible in America to do very ambitious national projects, but also a note of caution that we really need to think through uh, the positive and negative externalities. And, and one thing I, I think, Jake, maybe we can, we can spend some time working together on in the committee is I really haven't sat back and thought about, okay, lessons learned of the pandemic for infrastructure. I mean, you could sort of say like, okay, work from home, digital work is going to be here to stay. I mean, it's not going to be as it is right now. You know, at some point, people will want to have actual human interaction. But what does that mean for our infrastructure needs, right? I mean, obviously, it places a greater premium on rural broadband in a state like mine uh, in order to profit from sort of, you know, human capital. But um, that's an interesting question. What do we learn from the pandemic and what does it mean for infrastructure? And I think that's a question Eisenhower would be asking himself today. Representative Ackenklaus, I know you you brought up, you said there's there's many things we could learn from the Highway, Interstate Highway Act. As you're thinking about that and thinking about making transformative investments today, what, what are some of those lessons you bring forward? Mike said it very well in terms of the lessons from, from Eisenhower. I'll speak from a from a district's perspective right now, which is to say that the highways that we built have absolutely helped knit Massachusetts together with the broader regional and, and national economies. But they also plowed through black neighborhoods and really kind of cut a scar across much of the landscape. And we're, and we're not even, I would say, close to knitting them back together again. I just think we got to take a much more granular approach to transportation. And this is one of the reasons I like this smart scale program so much coming out of Virginia is that it would show that for a new highway project, for example, yes, there would be net positive impact for access to jobs and services at the terminus of the highway and maybe at the exit points. But when you look at all the neighborhoods adjacent to it that don't have means of egress, they are going to suffer from higher rates of, of public health, negative public health outcomes without necessarily any increased access. And those tend to be lower income communities. Those tend to be communities of color. So I think we just got to take a more organic bottoms up approach to transportation and invest more of the decision-making power into those who are, more attuned with with the needs of that of that community. Jake, if I could follow up with you, because Mayor Pete, now Secretary Buttigieg, really to me, the thing that I, I hope he's known best for in the transportation infrastructure realm is changing the investment pattern in South Bend from one of you know growing hyper out and and building a lot of new infrastructure to one of kind of going back and saying, Let's fix our main street. Let's let's redo this through town. Let's actually get this highway mentality out and actually make it about building a place. Going back to a transportation infrastructure package, how much of that kind of reclaiming these neighborhoods that were violated, that were bisected, how much of going back and, and kind of restoring this is going to be part of that conversation? And how do you do that, you know, today? given the time that's elapsed and all the kind of nuances on the ground? I've got great hopes for Mayor Pete. You know, when, I, when he and I spoke, we talked about some of the principles of the future of transportation caucus, equity, access, and sustainability. He bragged about being, well, I think, the first mayor in the Midwest to abolish parking minimums. So we're talking about a secretary of transportation who really understands strong towns principles and who is committed to implementing them. And he's bringing a millennial approach to it, which I think is really exciting. I know that he is deeply concerned about these issues as well. To me, a lot of it is about trying to give more of the decision-making to mayors and to the city councils about how they are making transportation investments. This is an interesting aspect of the American Rescue Plan that will play out over the next year or two. I have a hunch that it's going to be partly a backdoor infrastructure plan as well. A lot of money is going to states and cities. Some of it 
maybe more than they can plausibly figure out how to spend. And if there's one thing I know about state and local officials, it is that they are very crafty about tucking away funds for future rainy days or for future capital investments because they under, they have to balance their books and they understand that when a check comes, <laughs> it's, a, it's a, something to, to hold on to. I think we're going to see that they have more latitude over the next 18 months to 24 months to make investments, whether we're talking about HVAC upgrades to schools, to street improvement programs. And I hope we give them that, that latitude through the ARP. Mike, I want to ask you about the, uh, the kind of restoring some of the, the damage that's been done. You have a lot of small towns in your district. And, you know, one of the things that we see over and over again in small towns is that the main street is now the highway through the city. And you wind up with uh, kind of the priorities lined up around traffic flow as opposed to helping the businesses and economic development and, 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 you know, making the place work. There's this kind of tension there. How do we think about in, you know, the year 2021 investments in infrastructure that help strengthen that local economy uh, more than just, you know, grow the road amount of lane miles we have or the, the road amount of area we're providing infrastructure to. Yeah, it's, uh, I wish I had a silver bullet solution for it. I, I think a lot of it gets back to Jake's fundamental point, which is what I, I would call sort of a bottom-up approach of listening to mayors and, and local officials who truly understand the unique needs of these small cities and anytime we're, you know, we're talking about a build grant or, you know, other forms of infrastructure uh, funding, making sure it has that bottom up uh, perspective. And then I would say, you know, even at a time when, let's say, Congress uh, is divided, and, and I would be the first to admit that I, I think we missed a huge opportunity when I came in four years ago to tie tax reform and repatriation of money overseas to a transformative investment. Um, in infrastructure domestically, I then proposed sort of a, you know, kind of a big grand bargain budget deal where we would kind of have equal increases in infrastructure and military spending, because I thought that was the only thing that would avoid a government shutdown and, and be bipartisan. But even at a time when, when things like that aren't happening, or let's say, you know, to the extent we're doing an infrastructure bill over the next two years, it's going to be backdoored through these two rounds of budget reconciliation. There's always room from the bottom up to help communities like Ocano Falls in, in Wisconsin, you know, Seymour, the home of the hamburger, uh, deal with their unique infrastructure needs in a way that doesn't destroy daily life. You know, we've had phenomenal success in getting targeted infrastructure grants that help Northeast Wisconsin, and they don't get a lot of headlines, um, but something as simple as, you know, fixing a, a faulty interchange, you know, federal money to help with, with clean water in Sturgeon Bay. I mean, that stuff can be transformative. So I think a lot of it just comes from that, that bottom-up perspective. I want to offer one uh, top-down disagreement with myself here that I alluded to earlier, which is about parking. If I had to pick one issue in this country at the intersection of transportation and housing and the environment that I feel like is the most foundationally counterproductive, it is our parking policy as a country. We have a totally distorted market that reflects the kind of the opportunity cost of the land that is set aside for cars. I want to say it's like a third of all urban land in this country is used for storing cars. It's regressive in sort of the deepest sense of the word in the sense that those who are highest income tend to benefit from basically subsidies from the public in terms of how they store their cars. It shapes cities in a automobile spatial sense, as opposed to on a human centric sense. And obviously strong towns has written a lot about this. Housing becomes more expensive because we're subsidizing storage of cars rather than the places for people. And it creates buildings, and Chuck, you talk a lot about this, where it's big solutions, big developers, as opposed to fine-grained solutions and local developers. Because when you've got to wrap housing or commercial units around a massive parking garage, you need to be able to put you know, $50 million to work, and you need to be able to do the zoning for an entire city block. And it's just, it becomes a project that's out of reach for most people. I would be in favor of a, of a little bit more of a strong-arm national approach to parking. Because as I said earlier, just coming from the perspective of a local official, it is really challenging to take on parking sort of city block by city block because the, the backlash that you get is very self-selected for those who are trying to protect those parking spots. By the way, that's not a judgment against those who are trying to do it. I park outside of my house in Newton and I like it. This is every person watching out for their own ease and convenience 
is going to want really convenient parking. Like it's super nice, but the negative externalities associated with that, I think have really foundationally distorted land use and transportation in this country. You know, Jake, it's interesting. Sorry, just to follow up. I'm planning on doing a, a deep dive into this issue of asset recycling in my time on the committee. This Congress, I, I chair the uh, the Friends of Australia caucus. It's very, very prestigious, <laughs> let me tell you. Um, but, uh, but if you talk to the Aussies, right, and particularly our former ambassador, Joe Hockey, they, they had a, a very interesting experience in pioneering asset recycling. And the basic idea is that governments accumulate extraneous infrastructure, which goes unused and underappreciated. And, you know, meanwhile, we're constantly told that we need to spend trillions in infrastructure. So why not recycle the infrastructure we already have to generate revenue streams or sell off dead weight on our balance sheets to generate funds to pay for what we need? But one of the headwinds we're confronting right now is that particularly at the local level, some of the infrastructure that cities and, and towns own is for parking and, and they're loath to recycle it if it results in a user fee for their citizens because of the backlash that they're going right. to get. And so it, it becomes very, something that is very neat in concept becomes very difficult uh, when you confront the realities on the ground that you quite clearly laid out. I think that's exactly right. And it's a case where devolving decision-making to mayors, I would argue, is actually not the right solution because it's too close to the, to the popular will there. And just to be clear, I mean, I don't, I don't have a problem with parking per se. I have a problem with a distorted market for parking in the sense that we really heavily subsidize it. If, if we price parking what it actually is worth and what it actually costs, it's going to get allocated efficiently. And, and maybe, you know, in certain circumstances, mayors or state officials decide to subsidize it because, you know, you've got a, a commuter rail stop and it actually does make sense to induce more people to go there. And I think that makes sense, but it should be a case-by-case -case basis rather than this systemic, just blanket subsidy of parking throughout our national fabric. Yeah, well, we, I was told that we would have jetpacks and hoverboards at this point in America's development. And so we wouldn't need parking. Where, where we would be going, we would not need roads, Jake. So I'm not sure how we, we screwed that up. We've seen quite a few studies done. And my friend Joe Minicosi with Urban 3 has, has sat with a bunch of mayors and said, like, you're trying to get growth, you're trying to get housing, you're trying to get new development. Two thirds of your downtown is parking. Like there's the land that you own and the mayors have a really difficult time addressing that and letting go. I spent a lot of time thinking about parking and how we move cities into, into doing things differently. I've not thought a lot about the federal role in that. Jake, I'm not sure if you've gone to the next step of saying, okay, how would we do this? But if you have, I wanna give you room to kind of enunciate that because I'd, I'd like to hear it myself. It's funny you bring up Joe. I looped Joe into a debate we were having about parking in Newton to try to convince some of my colleagues, I, yeah. somewhat effectively actually, about the fact that we were giving too much parking to a big development in the city. Uh, he's great. He's, he's one of the leading voices on this. This is something I'm actually I'm grappling with, is how do you make transparent the cost of parking and then ask all levels of government to surface that? I don't have a good answer to it yeah. uh, and, and would welcome welcome expert opinions from strong towns and elsewhere on it. Maybe we need to work on that one. I mean, Jake is obviously far more of an expert in this than I am, so I don't have the solution, but I know, Chuck, you like to get philosophical. And something, something Jake said about, you know, there are areas in which, you know, devolving things to the lower level is not always the right answer, I think is, is a very profound point when we consider infrastructure, because a lot of my political philosophy is shaped by this sort of concept of, of subsidiarity, which I think people misunderstand as always meaning, you know, lower level of governance is better, right? Well, that's not actually what it means. It means finding that appropriate level at which governance and regulation can be most effective. And in some cases, like, you know, school districts, that tends to be hyper-local. Uh, in other cases, it, it, it can be, you know, statewide. And in other cases, it's federal. And so, um, I've never grappled with this parking issue from that perspective. Okay, what is the actual appropriate role for the federal government? But it's certainly something that I'd be willing to, Jake, work with you on. There is a certain I, aspect of subsidiarity too, where not only do you kind of devolve decision-making down to the, the level it can be made, but there's this idea of offering assistance down, mm. right? I think of this in a Catholic sense, you know, you give the local parish a lot of latitude and the local priest a lot of latitude, but you also give guidance and direction and kind of nudge things in a different direction. I wonder if there's a balance there that we can get to. Jake, you were going to add something on parking. I was going to say two things to that. One is my, my hunch, my political hunch, is that a lot of this is going to come down to the, 
to a federal will of tying dollars to changes in parking policy. I mean, the reason that the drinking age is 21 in most states is highway funds got tied to raising it to 21 from 18. It wasn't that 50 governors woke up one morning and were like, yeah, you know what, actually it should be 21. Money talks and federal money provides strong inducement for changing policy, even when it's loosely related. And I think we're going to have to be creative about tying federal dollars to targeted changes in parking policy and doing it flexibly enough that you still do allow state and local officials to, you know, in places where that's not the challenge, that, they, that they're, we're not unfairly penalizing those motorists because motorists is going to be one of the modalities that we need going forward. It's going to be everything from scooters to motorists to light rail to trucks. To, we want all of it. So we don't want to penalize people. We just want it all to be priced fairly. And then the second area is that I, I also think we're going to be able to draw a lot of lessons from Europe on this. European urban mobility is, is really just much better than American urban mobility. I look to a city like Copenhagen, for example, and the reason I find Copenhagen such an interesting source of inspiration is that in the 1970s, Copenhagen and Boston were in relatively similar situations. They had downtowns that were getting hollowed out. They had poor infrastructure. And then they made a series, each of them made a series of decisions over the next 50 years that have ended up in different places. Boston did some good work with the Big Dig, which I think has been transformative. But Copenhagen basically pooled together a lot of its assets and started funding improvements to transit through private development of land adjacent to that transit and using the, using the proceeds from that development to then fund the next leg of that transit. It was very incremental. It's very organic. And over the course of 50 years, they've become, I would argue, the single best example of urban mobility in the Western hemisphere, starting from the same place that Boston was in the 1970s. Can I give that a name? In the U.S., we talk about public-private partnerships. And I really find the way we do it to be very kind of bastardized and unproductive. But the way you're talking about uh, essentially uh, value capture as a way to mm, fund infrastructure right. is really a private public partnership in a way that truly benefits the public. Is this something that from a transit standpoint, we can start to, to, to talk about, you think? If, if memory serves, I mean, it was in the Trump infrastructure plan. There was a requirement for value capture financing for major transit projects. So you, you know, you can't use zoning to make those who own property around new projects filthy rich and instead, you know, use the enhanced value of the land to pay for projects. I mean, check me on that, but I think it was a key part of it. And so that, you know, that suggests you could bring Republicans along and to the extent it marries with work you've already done um, at the state and local level, Jake, that might be an opportunity for, for bipartisan cooperation, particularly as we, we think about modernizing funding streams and you know, moving away over time from the gas tax, which should be indexed to inflation and moving to vehicle miles traveled and all the creative ways we need new revenue. And that might be a, a, just a, a low hanging fruit there. Jake, what about this idea of value captured to, as a way to really accelerate transit investments? How does that fit into the mix? It's promising. And I, I can't speak to Wisconsin. What I would say that in Massachusetts is we, I'm not sure that we have the appropriate level of governments. We were talking about subsidiarity I think state is in some areas maybe a little too big and the localities, Massachusetts is a very sort of a hyper-local governed area. Localities are a little too small. I had proposed a couple of years ago in an article, a new agency called MHAT, the Eastern Massachusetts Housing and Transportation Authority that would try to do this based on the Copenhagen model, try to take on both the assets of the MBTA and Massport, as well as a lot of public land to create a, a value capture model where the value capture was happening internally and thereby bypassing some of the, the gnarly politics at the state and local level. Uh, but it's going to require, I think, a new, a new level of subsidiarity, at least in the New England area, is, is my guess. Representative Gallagher, I, I want to kind of follow up on that. You said something that really resonates with me, the idea that we go in as a federal government, make a massive investment in infrastructure, and that, that really benefits in a very tangible way, a lot of on the ground speculators and people who are able to kind of front run that and get themselves in and, and, and experience that value benefit. That happens a lot with transit and we see it. And there's a lot of kind of lost, I think public wealth or public wealth that is transferred to private individuals in rural areas in particular. This is one of the places where I see us missing an opportunity to not only write scale our infrastructure investments, but actually pay for them in a way that's, that's responsible. How do we go to 
that small town that wants the new interchange or that place that wants us to build another mile of frontage road for them and say like, look, we can maybe be partners in this, but the the economics of it have to be a little bit different. There's got to be a, a different mix of, of how we pay for this. Is it a public-private partnership? Is that the rubric we put this under? Well, I mentioned um, some of the ways in which we tried to change the incentive structure and failed over the last four years, but it was precisely for for that reason, right? I mean, I, I'm skeptical of spending massive amounts of federal dollars through taxing states and cities and then packaging that money as federal grants only to send it back to the states and cities. At times, it sort of strikes me as a, a self-looking ice cream cone. And I think we would often be better off having states and cities raise the money themselves through taxes and local financing so they would indeed have the flexibility they need to complete the projects however they see fit. If they can't raise the money, then we might question whether or not their tax base can support the project. And if it's a project of national importance, such as interstate commerce, then federal dollars can and should absolutely come into play. But that's an ideal world. I mean, the reality is that we have dozens, if not hundreds of grant programs that mayors can tap into uh, that have a a ton of strings attached. And these programs were created for a reason. Uh, Congress isn't and shouldn't be in the business of of taxing other parts of the nation to give blank checks to different parts of the nation unless it's a project of national importance. So, I mean, it's a complicated picture, and I think it's going to require us to overhaul, you know, over the course of the next decade, how we award uh, federal dollars. Uh, but if, you know, if, if cities continue taking on debt, chasing shiny objects, I think many of them are going to face, uh, you know, bankruptcy and insolvency over the next decade. Part of this is mismanagement. Part of it's fallout from coronavirus. And the rest is a myriad of other challenges that differ by location. So I look forward to, to Jake and I fixing all these problems over the next two years. <laughs> Part of this is going to be, I think, updating Gatsby as well. And I know Strong yeah. has written about this. Wow. But I, I, I thank you. I, <laughs> I didn't know you were uh, you were versed in uh, updating Gatsby because Gatsby's a disaster. That's driving a lot of this, right? Well, and it's it's an area that I I had some experience in at the local level, in that this was you know pre-COVID back in the sort of different mindset, but we were in a situation where the interest rates for municipal debt, for example, were, I don't know, two and a half, three percent, something like that. And the shadow interest rate for our depreciated roads, for the, for the damage that they caused to individuals, motorists, and lost productivity was estimated at somewhere between seven and 12 percent. And so we had this opportunity to swap out relatively cheap financial debt for and, and pay down relatively expensive infrastructure debt. But the infrastructure liabilities are, are not articulated in any kind of municipal balance sheet. Nobody ever sees that. And this is obviously the point about looking at them as a liability rather than as just an implicit asset. If we can update GASB and just make it again, it goes, this goes back to transparency and, and making data tractable and transparent for people. If we can just show the true balance sheet that cities are facing, I think not immediately, but over the course of a couple of sort of election and governance cycles, that starts to get digested by people and different decisions are going to start to be made. What's it like being on a city council and having a budget presented to you that doesn't account for those liabilities? What's the decision-making process like? Because I, I feel like that's part of the, the mix here is as federal partners, we're asking locals to make complex decisions, but in many ways, local officials don't have all the information. No, and I, I, what I can point to is a, as opposed to a negative example, it's a positive one, which is in my tenure, we began to make our post-employment benefits much more crystallized. The, both the healthcare and the retirement liabilities that were on our balance sheet, I think because of Gatsby updates actually became articulated as something like a billion dollars for the city of Newton, for example. That changes the political conversation. Again, not overnight. It's not like you know a series of laws gets passed immediately, but if you get a number and you can point to it to voters to explain why you're making the decisions you are. And then it also, because it has become articulated and and quantified, you can show progress against it. And every elected official wants to be able to show progress against goals, but it's really hard to do that if they're not quantified. So that was a really important step forward for paying down municipal liabilities in terms of employment benefits. And I think the same thing could happen with infrastructure. Yeah. And I think a bigger point about Gatsby and and Congress, I think I could probably count on maybe one finger, the number of members of Congress who understand Gatsby, and it's probably Jake uh, is the only one. Um, (laughs) 
it's my experience based only on four years of observation and as someone who did not come from politics that the best work, uh, particularly on TNI or the Armed Services Committee, which, which I uh, am on as well, that gets done tends to be this very targeted, you know, serious effort at reform for which there is often no, you know, media benefit or immediate political benefit. But I suspect if we are going to fix our infrastructure problems in this country, it's going to require Congress in a very unglamorous fashion tackling all these very unsexy issues. And it's not going to be a huge, massive silver bullet in a massive infrastructure bill. Parking in Gasby, Mike. Parking in parking Gasby. Gasby. We'll take it on. <laughs> if we fix parking the rally in Gasby, cry. you two would be my heroes for sure. <laughs> I know we're getting towards the, the end of our time. I don't want to end without kind of previewing what your goals are, what you'd like to see happen this year. I'm not going to ask you to predict what will happen because I think we've been predicting an infrastructure bill for years and who knows, you both talked about backdoor procedures and I'm that stuff I'm not wholly familiar with. Can you give us a little sense of what you'd like to accomplish in terms of legislation this year and what maybe we should be thinking about as Strong Towns advocates? Listen to this, what we can push on and what we can help with and what we can get involved that would make a difference. And maybe I'll start with you, Representative Gallagher, if you wouldn't mind kind of walking us through. I, I know you're in the minority, and so there's a there's a limit to what you get to, to push, but uh, go ahead, walk us through this, please. I'm, I'm painfully aware of that fact. Uh, so I have, <laughs> I, I have some, um, some very short-term priorities uh, for my district that, I, that I'm hoping to advance through the committee and, and get down this Congress. So as I mentioned, I mean, I, I sit on, on Lake Michigan, I, you know, and in Congress this session, I hope to codify the Coast Guard's icebreaking mission on the Great Lakes. It's a very weird niche issue, but it's a, you know, it's one of those targeted issues where it would make a big deal. I mean, it'd be a very big deal to my district that I'm hoping to get done. And it's a priority of the Great Lakes Task Force. I'm also working on a bill called the Safe Routes Act, which would eliminate some of the burdensome regulations that force logging trucks to use back roads and residential roads instead of federal interstate. So those are just two areas where I kind of have like smaller projects that I think we can actually make meaningful progress on in this Congress. And then of course, they're zooming out to bigger picture. I know I briefly alluded to it before. I think there's an enormous um, reservoir of bipartisan support for this idea of rural broadband, right? Rural broadband. Everyone needs rural broadband. States like mine, which want to compete with states like Jake for top level human talent in, you know, in, in a new world of digital distance work, you know, if we have good internet in rural areas, perhaps we can convince someone to move there and start a family there. But we always confront this fiber problem, right? Where it's just not economically viable over the long term to lay fiber to single houses or, or small neighborhoods, right? So there's some promising technologies coming online. I'm particularly intrigued by a lot of Starlink's claims about their latency and how they can compete with fiber. And um, I just think there's some, some big idea related to rural broadband that we could potentially work on, and that would fundamentally be a bipartisan issue in this Congress, given that I think everybody recognizes, particularly in the midst of coronavirus, how important it is to have reliable internet access, not just so you can telecommute to work, but so your kids can actually learn uh, if they're forced to do distance learning as well. Right. Representative Ackenbach. Not just rural either. I would say, I mean, I think it's acute in rural areas, but I mean, urban Boston has similar, not similar, but has also has broadband challenges. I think improving broadband connectivity is, I mean, it's like lowering prescription drug out-of-pocket costs. It is just a almost uniformly popular issue because Americans recognize the incredible return on investment for it, how much more productive and high quality they, their lives will be. Like Mike, I've got some very specific district level projects, a federal permit for the Alston Interchange and CSO reforms for Fall River, I would say kind of medium level granularity. I'm just really invested in being a catalyst and a convener for Southeastern Massachusetts. This is such a tremendous region. There is such talent there. There's good housing stock. There's reasonably good transportation infrastructure. They've got connectivity to Providence and Boston. It could be the next hub for offshore wind maintenance. It could be the next hub for life sciences manufacturing. Uh, and the ingredients are there and it just needs a little bit of like a, a shaking up 
to, to get it done. And I'm not going to come there with the solutions, but I can help you somebody who facilitates that. And that's very exciting to me. Um, and then big picture, it's really about kind of getting this mindset change in, into T&I. This idea of measuring projects about their ability to connect people to jobs and services about a more, I'm going to take on this term, like, like a subsidiarity, uh, uh, that approach of trying to nest decision-making with the level of governance most suitable for it. Usually when it comes to infrastructure, I think states and cities, uh, trying to get that mindset more embedded in TNI would be a, a big picture goal for me. Well, I think we identified a few areas where we can uh, join hands across the aisle and uh, fixing Gasby is now my, my rallying cry for the next <laughs> few years. The parking issue and then this general commitment to, to transparency, as well as elucidating this master theory of the universe that connects subsidiarity and Marine Corps mission tactics and commander's intent that I, I can't quite grasp right now, but it's, it's almost there. Well, well, it's because you are a Marine. I mean, so it's, you know, good grunt level IQ. That's right. <laughs> Go again. What, what was your, what was your rank when you got out? Cause I was a Sergeant. And so, you know, very, very working class kind of thing. I was in to pay for college. What was hey, your rank? NCOs. NCOs well, yeah. run the Marine Corps. I think any officer would tell you that. Yeah. Army too. Yeah. Jake, what was your rank when you got out? I know this was a, this was a thing we talked about before we started. I can't remember. Yep. I was a captain when I got out. And then by virtue of having a pulse, I was promoted to major in the uh, IRR, the lowest level of the reserves. Okay. And Mike, you were? I got out as a captain and a captain I shall remain until, okay. until I die. <laughs> that, I was talking to the Civil Air Patrol yesterday and they said I could join like the legislative unit and I would become a lieutenant colonel immediately. And I thought, well, I, I vowed never to become a field grade officer because something, <laughs> something seemed to always get lost when people made the transition from company yeah. grade to field grade. Yeah. Yeah. There's something very real about being a captain, right? Gentlemen, it's been wonderful. I thanks to your staff for helping make this happen. Thank you to you for taking the time. Let's keep in touch. And I, I, I would love to, to know places where we can help and where we can help push things. And, and, and if there's a place I love the fact that we are, uh, the three of us, you know, come from very different places and very different backgrounds, but have a lot, uh, a lot of things that we care about together. So thanks for taking the time. Representative Gallagher. Chuck, it was a pleasure. Nice you. Representative Auchincloss, so nice to Thank meet you. you. We'll get together in DC at some point. That would be wonderful. I look forward, I look to, forward that. to it. Okay. You're welcome. Take care of you guys. Thank you so much. Taking risk is a necessity to becoming rich. It's also a necessity to go bankrupt. Bill, 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 Bill. That's the story. They know that America's one big pothole right now. Just to echo what you said, there are no silver bullet solutions. Chuck Marone, this has been fascinating. The window is not always open, but if nobody's pushing, then once the window opens, there'll be no chance to go through. I like you. I like your vision of the, of the world. The United Nations Earth Summit. Agenda 21. Yeah.